all communications is audience specific. So you think about the audience. Why would they read your message? Why would they listen to you? Uh, you know, they're, they're so busy. There are other things to do. Uh, and that often leads to some breakthroughs to really think things through from the other end of the telescope rather than, you know, this is what I want to say and I want people to buy my stuff to, okay, how can I help this person? What, what problem do they actually need solving? Hey folks, Garrett here. In this episode of the Most Awesome Founder Podcast, we introduce Oliver Oust, entrepreneur, investor, best-selling author, and strategic communications guru. We're discussing Oliver's founder journey from growing up in Northern Germany to studying at the London School of Economics, his early work at General Motors to becoming head of communications and public affairs at EasyJet, from founding his agency, EO Ipso Communications, to his best-selling book, Unignorable. Oliver's a master communicator with so many valuable insights for entrepreneurs. His advice on personal branding and corporate communications to content marketing and social media channels are not only unignorable, but extremely valuable as well. So I hope you enjoy listening as much as I did our conversation. This episode is brought to you by WHU, the Otto Beisheim School of Management. WHU is reshaping the way students learn about business, management, finance, and entrepreneurship through its innovative programs and partnerships in Germany and across the globe. To learn more about this globally ranked university, visit whu.edu today. Coming to you from WHU, on the banks of the Rhine River, in beautiful Fallendar, Germany. This is the best and most awesome founder podcast. A show about entrepreneurs, innovators, advisors, and educators, and the stories that make them who they are today. Well, Oliver Aust, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Such a pleasure to have you here. Hi, Garrett. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this. Well, it's great. You know, you and I have obviously met a few times before. I've been uh, honored to be on your podcast, so it's really nice to be in the in the other seat this time and and direct the show. I don't personally, I don't like talking about myself very much, so I'm much more interested in talking about you. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're a great guest, and uh, you know, on the speak speak like a CEO podcast, it was really great for you to uh, give so much advice for young founders and entrepreneurs with all your experience. So that's much appreciated. Well, I'm looking forward to gaining the same experience from you this time, Oliver. So, um, but I like to start all of our episodes, you know, getting to know a little bit more about you. And to me, you've had a really interesting life, you know, being German, being educated in the UK, working in some of the largest companies in the world in different roles, going out onto your own entrepreneurial journey, becoming a best-selling author. Um, I'm sure there's so many things you can unpack. Um, my rules on answering this question are, there are no rules. So you can start from the crib, you can start wherever you want, but uh, basically we'd just like to know like where you come from and kind of how you got to where you are today. Yeah, happy to. So I, I was born and raised in a little town uh, north of Hamburg, close to the Danish border. So there were no entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurship wasn't really topic you know it wasn't good or bad it just wasn't there so i grew up expected and expecting to be something like a lawyer or maybe going to local politics or a teacher or some sort of predictable career uh, that requires a good education and uh, my parents and my family definitely valued education and hard work so very much the protestant work ethic and 
you know, I, you know, I grew up uh, always, always working, whether my mom would send me to the garden or I would look for jobs as a paper boy or on construction sites or done all, all sorts of odd jobs from, you know, working in a polystyrol family, uh, factory to uh, going on, on TV quiz shows to earn money for, for tuition fees, basically. And, you know, uh, just been quite, um, uh, you know, entrepreneurial in the sense to, you know, always finding ways to earn money as a kid, or as, as a teenager as well, which, which was cool because, I, you know, bought me some uh, freedom that maybe my peers didn't have. And, you know, I figured that that's pretty cool. You have money, you have freedom, you can buy your bike or stereo or take a girl to the cinema or, you know, all these, all these fun things when you, when you grow up. So I associated work and um, work with liberty, with, with freedom. I didn't make that conclusion that, you know, maybe there's more to this than finding a job and a paycheck every month. But, you know, I went to university and then basically had this odd conversation with myself where I decided I want to have an interesting life. I'm not going to go on this standard career path that is maybe expected of me. Uh, I want to go to London. London's a cool place. I've visit, visited it. So I want to go there and study there. So I applied, managed to get in with my quiz show money. I could afford the tuition fee and live there for a little while. Um, got a good education, studied politics, and always wanted to become uh, basically something with media, communicator, spin doctor. So th those were the 90s, and spin doctors were a thing, right? And I went to work with Tony Blair's people as a volunteer. So try, just try, try to work with the best and network your way to the best, even if you're not getting paid for it, but just learn from the best. And, and London is where the best communicators were at the time and, and probably still are. So um, after my studies, I went to Brussels and uh, worked in political communications, aka lobbying, and uh, worked for big international companies, including General Motors. And that was quite a culture shock coming from, uh, you know, a relatively small consultancy where I started out um, working in a, in a huge company. GM still was the biggest car manufacturer in the world, I think, world market leader for something like 70 years. Completely ridiculous. Hundreds of thousands of people. And obviously, me joining in my 20s, you know, I was no one. Um, but it gave me a good impression of what I not wanted to do with my life because you could immediately see that A, the company isn't going into good places and B, um, you don't really have control over your life. They just tell you, okay, your next stage of your career maybe in Detroit or Shanghai or Australia, you know, who knows. Um, and I didn't want to leave that life where other people decided what I would do and where I would live. Um, at that time, I got an interesting offer from EasyJet, which was an up-and-coming, scale-up, uh, fun airline, and um, basically needed someone to build the brand and, and reputation communications across Europe, outside the UK, the UK-based uh, airline, and one of the biggest in Europe. Uh, and I thought, well, that, that's a cool challenge. And typical startup manner, we, uh, you know, the office was in a porter cabin, or a bunch of porter cabins, and a hangar. Uh, at a remote airport outside London, and um, I basically got this task, but no, I, no one knew how to do it. There was no team, hardly any budget. So, okay, you you built the company's brand across Europe. Go go do it, uh, and I did, and uh, it, it was super challenging and super interesting, and I learned an awful lot. I think I gave about a thousand media interviews during my six years at EasyJet, and uh, yeah, I, I did probably did a decent job and got promoted a few times, and in the end, I was kind of the CEO's right hand guy where I would um, basically travel everywhere with the CEO, but go to all these meetings with transport ministers and mayors and um, you know, the chief editors in chief and all of these things. So learned an awful lot also about business. And I realized while I was working there that oh, you know, that's where entrepreneurship obviously came into my life by working for a very entrepreneurial company that was the absolute opposite of General, General Motors. And I noticed that we had a bunch of PI agencies and my team and I, we would manage them. 
and they would charge us a lot of money every month, um, but the service wasn't that great. So I developed the idea that you could probably do something better, maybe not in London because there are a lot of great agencies here, but definitely on the continent. So uh, there was a management change a few years later and basically new CEO often means new chief communicator. And I decided, okay, I'm not gonna fight this out. I did my best for six years, I had a blast, but it's probably time to do something else and move on and maybe not work for someone else. So I had this idea of setting up my, my communications consultancy, which I did. And that was my first company that I set up 10 years ago. And it's still going, it's going strong. It's, it's sort of my bread and butter, my day job, if you like. And um, in the meantime, I've set up a few other companies and a few years ago also started to write books and uh, you know launched a podcast with a colleague um, and started to be much more present and much more thinking of myself as an entrepreneur and thought leader rather than um, say a, a business owner. That was quite a journey. So I'm, you know, 20 years into my career, so sort of midway point. And I think, you know, this is the second time where I reinvent myself. The first time when I left the corporate world 10 years ago, and now probably roughly around this time, a second time where uh, maybe the next 10 years look look different. I probably still keep my companies and the other things we, we I'm building, and I'm, I'm sure you we can we can talk about that. Um, but also um, look for new challenges, look for new opportunities and, and basically think bigger and think more, you know, collabor collaborating with other people, what alliances, what technologies give me scale, give me uh, leverage that I can use and just think much more like an entrepreneur than a business owner. Well, there's there's so many things I want to unpack out of that story, Oliver, because I think it's, you know, I can relate so much to this uh, very circuitous career trajectory, right? Some people have a very linear path and other people kind of dip their toes in, in different seas along the way. First thing I want to ask you is, you know, this idea of being a communicator, because, I mean, you speak uh, pretty damn close to fluent, perfectly fluent English. Um, you're also a native German speaker. As someone that, you know, has spent a career as a wordsmith, you know, I, what kind of challenges do you face having to, to kind of go back and forth? Do you have like one language where what is your strong suit or is it pretty much uh, an even playing field these days? It's pretty much an even playing field, to be honest. Uh, it took a lot, of, a lot of work and a lot of intentional practicing. Um, I, I probably have a natural inclination for languages, I, I would think so. And I was always drawn to communication. So I was typing my own newspaper when I was eight, uh, you know, in my bedroom. So I was always thinking that, that that's, that's a cool thing to do. Maybe I wanted to be a journalist and then I started to write for the local paper as a teenager. So all sorts of uh, touch points with communications before I started that career. And when I went to England, my English wasn't that great. And I was really working on it every day and not just from a sort of grammar and vocabulary level, but also uh, pronunciation, for instance. So really look at indiv individual words, trying to pronounce them correctly, get feedback. So it took a lot of deliberate work, but I always saw it as a, <clears throat> as, as, as a fun task because it enables you to communicate um, at, at a level that very few non-native speakers can. And also practice the written elements of it. And then obviously, after 20 years in business, mostly speaking and communicating in English, it, it is absolutely second nature to me. In fact, when I came back to Germany, people are, oh, you know, your German's pretty good. Well, um, how, how did you learn German? Or where did you learn German? Because I had, a, I had an English accent. I really mm. had an English accent in German. And often I couldn't think of the right word. 
and my, my German sounded a bit antiquated because it wasn't here for 10 years or 15 years. Um, and obviously there are a lot of Anglicisms which entered the language and millennial talk. And so, I, you know, I spoke like an old man, basically, probably in the ears of many people. But fortunately, fortunately in recent years, I've, you know, I've, I've picked up German again. And, uh, you know, I don't get these comments anymore. <laughs> when, when you write, I mean, you've written three books. When you write, do you, do you write initially in German or initially in English? Um, I write in English. Um, the first three books, they're all in my, my three books, they're all in English and they have been written in English. I've now um, written a translation of Unignorable, my latest book, which which is now uh, available in a few weeks. It will be available in German as well. And I'm, I'm thinking about uh, writing my next book in German to reach a sort of wider German audience. Cool. I I, I want to go back to the uh, this transition from working from for one of the largest, you know, oldest, maybe most antiquated companies in the world to this high growth scale up. I guess you would call EasyJet to to your entrepreneurial journey. What was it in that experience with EasyJet that maybe gave you that kind of bug? That, you know, I think a lot of people think of when they make that transition, there's some itch that they need to scratch or some profound experience that makes them realize that the the structural kind of systems of the corporate world aren't for them. What what was that for you? I think the uh, what I didn't like about GM to start with that was that it's very, it was very slow moving and as I said you have no control about about you know over what you do where you live etc. So you're very much out of control and everything requires ten people to sign off. What I loved about EasyJet was the entrepreneurial spirit. On the one hand, you know here's a task, go do it. Don't care how you do it, just get it done right. And no one is micromanaging you or looking over your shoulder. Only results count. And there's no hierarchy, basically. I go to the CEO and say, I, you know, do you agree with this statement? Yeah, right, go ahead, do it. And that gives you an edge over your competition who is who just slower. And we, we, we were just, it was like taking candy from a baby, right? Winning market share with that business model, which was extremely efficient vis-a-vis -vis the old formerly state-owned airlines. It was very easy. However, there were, there were so many political obstacles we had to overcome because obviously they went to their governments and said, you need to protect us from these pirates, which they did you know, in France and Germany and Italy and so on. So that was the real struggle. Convince the public not to fly with us, but to help us overcome these obstacles. And they were, you know, they, they were pretty bare knuckles. So I was once almost arrested at an Italian airport because we were giving away flights for free and the gendarme, the, the, the carabinieri, they didn't like that. They, they thought we shouldn't fly this route and offer people for free when, you know, that state-owned airline was just making a killing on selling expensive tickets. So, you know, it, that, that was just fun. That was challenging. And I learned so much about business. It was really this, oh, business is really easy. You know, people just overcomplicate it. Uh, it was literally, you know, does this increase revenue? Does it re reduce cost or does it increase safety? It's the answer is, if the answer is no, we're not going to do it. If the answer is yes, we want to do it. Um, so it, it was always boiled down to the most essential elementary level. And that, that was just appealing because it peered away all these layers of complexity that in the end, no one needs. They just get in, in the way. And uh, it, was, it was clear that complexity makes things expensive and we don't want things to be expensive. Um, so this autonomy, this this challenge, uh, the adventure, the camaraderie—you know—all of these things I really loved about being in, in, in this environment. And uh, yeah, the entrepreneurial spirit, which not many companies have, and I think is always hard to conserve uh, and preserve when you when you grow up so fast and you're hiring thousands of people, uh, set up shop all over the continent. So that makes it very difficult uh, to maintain that startup spirit. <laughs> So then you you went from a scale up like EasyJet, which obviously grew at a astronomical pace, 
and has become incredibly successful along the way. But then when you started your, I guess, your first venture, it was uh, a very different business model, right? More of the, the consulting model, um, more linear growth than, than uh, hockey stick type growth. Um, did you feel a, a pretty, was there a, a culture shock in that model? Because there's a very different way of managing and and uh, operating a professional services firm as it is something that scales like an airline. Yeah, exactly. And uh, in hindsight, maybe it would have done things differently. But to be honest, 10 years ago, this was what I could imagine and what I thought I could do without much capital risk. Uh, and if it doesn't work, no harm done, right? If you have no clients, you just move on and do something else. And I wasn't even sure. I even applied for other jobs, uh, uh, you know, nothing suitable that really... Uh, you know, tick of my interest came up. So I said, right, I'm just, I'm just going to set up an agency. I'm just going to do it. Um, but yeah, in hindsight, it's it's probably something I would have been, should have been more intentional about. So what's the business model? Do you really want to build a client service business or do you want to build something else and maybe find some others? I think in hindsight, I would have still started that, uh, but moved on quicker, right? And looked for ways to build on that with the next stage where maybe you need more time, more capital, more, more collaborators, um, but, you know, it, it has worked well for me and, is, and I enjoy working with clients and uh, I try to scale the agency in the meantime, but stop doing that because I realized I don't want to manage 50 people in an agency environment um, where all the pressure is basically on me to deliver new business uh, or manage people and it gets really messy and the margins are not that great and you can't really sell it. An agency model is tough. Um, but if you have a team, it allows you to do other things. That, that's the fun part. So if you have all this expertise in your team, you can start writing books, you can have podcasts, you can build your brand, you can uh, you know, build funnels, you can do all, all sorts of fun things uh, in-house that you would otherwise have to pay other people to do for you. Um, and, and it's just great to have a team. So there's, there's also that element of um, having very smart, very dedicated, interesting people because strategic communications is, is really attracting a lot of interesting, talented people uh, who just want to work in this, in this kind of business, which, you know, same, same way I did. Yeah, I, I want to get into some of these fun projects that you're you're working on too. But can you tell me a little bit about your your agency EO Ipso? Like, what kind of clients do you work with, and what kind what kind of services do you provide them? So um, it, it's called EO Ipso Communications, and it's a communications consultancy. We offer basically three kinds of services. One is let's say CEO communications, personal branding for CEOs. Secondly, strategic communication. So we help people with their communication strategy, which is uh, crucial and often overlooked. Um, and thirdly, we offer crisis communication support. So if you believe oh, my, my company may be hit by a crisis, you want to prepare for that, you want to do simulations. And if the, the proverbial shit hits the fan, you obviously want people to help you uh, who've done this many times before. So these are the three things we do. We don't, we're not a content uh, factory. We're not a, we don't like the term PI agency because that seems pretty tactical and backward looking. So it's more about um, valuing strategic side of communications and helping uh, the chief communicators and the CEOs and C-levels to deal with the communications challenges of, of this day and age. And we have clients that range from really uh, scale-ups and startups uh, in the Berlin ecosystem, accelerators and so on, to uh, huge companies like the Airbuses and FedExes of this world. So massive companies. And you, you learn from both and you, you hopefully provide value to both. And they're good, good things about the communications in, in large companies and bad things and vice versa. 
So in a large company, often things move slowly, but they have the resources, they understand what's required. They don't usually screw up because they tend to play it safe, um, but, but they're professionals, they know what they're doing. On the startup side, they're often more agile, they can be a bit more provocative, more interesting, you know, they, they can provide really interesting content, it's more fun to work with them, but they also often don't quite understand yet uh, the value and the importance. Uh, so for instance, crisis communications, often something needs to happen to start up before they take that seriously. Just talking about it usually doesn't work. So we say, okay, we're here if you need us. Eventually, will something bad will happen. Uh, and then you need professional support usually. So, um, but on the upside, they're agile. They're um, usually, as I said, not just more interesting, but also um, <clears throat> usually the, the, the people in charge tend to be younger. So they're more digital as well. So I think we can provide value to both sides and working with both sides means we always see what's best practice and play that back and, you know, in, in any circumstance. Well, let's talk about the startup world a little bit, because I think that's a, a large segment of, of our audience, you know, young and nascent entrepreneurs. Um, I know you and I have mentored a lot of the same startups because we both uh, support Techstars Berlin. Um, I what I remember seeing your name on the list and I was going, I'm really I would love to sit in one of his mentor sessions. Can you share a little bit? I mean, without obviously pointing to specific ventures, but share a little bit. What are the common pitfalls that you see with, you know, early stage entrepreneurs and where do you find that you most often give them support? Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. Um, I like this quote by Navarro Ravikant, who said that uh, learn to sell, learn to build. If you can do both, you will be unstoppable. And I think that's that's the best case anyone has ever made for communication. So usually startups focus on building the product on message, uh, sorry, on product market fit. And where I come in and, and hopefully can help is with a message market fit. So the selling element and indeed communications and startup level is often very much about selling and uh, building a minimum viable minimum viable brand and then thinking about how to how to sell the product uh, quickly and efficiently so those things go together and uh, i think the pitfalls are often not taking it seriously enough and a lack of clarity there's often a lack of clarity at the beginning which which is natural it's part of the process but i obviously try to help them to get clarity into their messaging so it resonates with the right audiences and then find the right tools and tactics to reach those audiences and it's often just you know what who, who are you what do you stand for what's the product what's the use case um there's there's often a certain language applied internally at startups and the startup ecosystem that doesn't always translate well into the wider world and I think that's a bridge which I can help to to overcome or to to <clears throat> to, to build and then to cross uh, to help people with with that one element that fifty percent of the successes I like to sell the selling element the message market fit to ensure the message resonates. And when you say message market fit, I love that term. You know, like and and I see some similarities when I'm coaching startups on on sales, but also on raising money that. You know, they'll focus down uh, to too high a resolution on some things and not and not maybe not uh, focused enough on others. Sometimes they s tend to lose the forest through the trees, if you will. What do you see is like, are there some specific kind of pitfalls that are common, tr common mistakes that they make in terms of what they're focusing on or the way they're communicating things? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. It gets too granular too quickly. So, okay, we, we want to approach people on LinkedIn. Um, and this is the message we're sending. Okay, wow, you know, who are you? What are you selling? Why would I respond to your message? 
Um, and this comes back to thinking more strategically and systematically about communication. So you start with what's my objective here? You figure out what the strategy is and only then you move on to the tactics like LinkedIn. Is LinkedIn even the right channel? And if so, how do we approach people on LinkedIn? Then often uh, other pitfalls are that communication is too self-referential or assumes too much or is jargon laid, you know, loaded with jargon. Um, often it's not thought through from the audience's perspective. And one of my, my key mantras and comms is always, all communications is audience specific. So you think about the audience, why would they read your message? Why would they listen to you? Uh, you know, they're, they're so busy, there are other things to do. Uh, and that often leads to some breakthroughs to really think things through from the other end of the telescope rather than, you know, this is what I want to say and I want people to buy my stuff to, okay, how can I help this person? What, what problem do they actually need solving? So it's often to reverse the whole process from me, my startup and I to, okay, this is the audience, their problems and I'm here to serve them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, you touched on so many interesting points that make me want to scream sometimes. And it it tends to happen with the, the first time or the maybe the first or second time entrepreneurs where they're they're regurgitating all the buzzword bingo you know and it's all the big words but it doesn't connect with people very much i i wanted to ask one other piece because it's something that i talk a lot about um whether it's through sales or capitalization it's the the use of storytelling like do you do you kind of come in with uh, the ethos around storytelling as well as uh, as a kind of a key component for for entrepreneurs? Yeah, I, I do. I do. I think it comes back to know me, lust, know me, know me, like me, trust me, pay me. Right. And how can you trust someone if you don't know who that person is or why they are, why they feel strongly about this? And I'm sure this is why you start your podcast with the question about, you know, who are you? T tell us your story. And um, I, I encourage people to do the same. But storytelling in a way that's not self-referential, but actually refers back to the problem you have solved maybe and now want to solve for others. So my story about personal branding, for instance, I often start with that and I talk about, um, you know, me having to leave, wanting to leave my corporate job and building my own business, but no one knew me as, you know, a startup entrepreneur or someone who would come out, come from the outside and help someone else uh, build a business. So I had to reinvent myself and that required personal branding. Hence the books, the podcasts, and so on, and that that was the foundation for my you know small small scale success uh, you know that I've enjoyed so far. Um, so I've I've solved a problem for myself, um, which, which happens to be in my area of expertise that I now can help solve others solve as well. And I think that kind of storytelling is quite useful for uh, for any startup entrepreneur because often there are quite interesting stories behind them. Usually there was an itch or there was a, you know, they, they encountered this problem for themselves and then decided to solve it. And there's an interesting origin story. And, you know, I think I agree that too many startups don't make enough of that and just hop into the sales mode. And I think, you know, jumping from storytelling and building trust and building relationship to selling that needs to be quite deliberate. That's a that's the Rubicon you, you you cross, right? So yes, at some point you want to do it, you must do it, but it should be deliberate and intentional, and you should be aware that you're doing it, and not just jump on the other person who's thinking, oh, I'm just you know, I thought we we're building a relationship here at this stage, and now you want to sell me your product. Mm, yeah, you know, it, I, I love how you said that. Uh, 
you know, there's usually a, there's oftentimes a story behind it of this founder that's solving this particular problem. You, you know, you talk about uh, product message fit. You know, I always talk a lot about founder market fit. You know, are you the right person to do this? Did you personally feel the pain point of the problem that you're trying to solve? Well, that should be an integral part of your story because that makes you virtually irreplaceable in in this business model. But that leads me to the the next question that I have for you, which is, you know, the the book that you recently wrote, Unignorable, about you know communications and, and personal branding. Great book, by the way. It's in my in my bedroom. Um, as an as an entrepreneur, right? We we are wearing so many hats, especially in the early stage. We're doing so many different things. We're trying to build the visibility of our company, of our startup's brand. How do you balance that? Do you, should we be working on building our personal brand in parallel to that? And you know, how do you how do you balance that when you know the expectation of you is to give your heart and soul and blood, sweat and tears to your business, but then you're also working on your own kind of outward facing identity how how do you balance that that's a great question i think i would start with stating that the difference between a couple of people in a startup and a perceived unicorn is is all communications right so there are so many startups who work on very similar ideas that from the outside and you know i sometimes angel invest so you see from the outside and you think or, or as a mentor okay is this really a top-notch startup that can really go to places and communications will enable them to shift that perception from, okay, there are a couple of guys in a startup to those people are going to unicorn status, at least they have a shot, right? So it is crucial. And yes, the, the, everyone should give their all to their company if they're building it, because it will require that to be successful. At the same time, people will not necessarily know the company name, right? So especially at the beginning, it's it's crucial that the that the founders, or at least one of the founders, builds a personal brand as well. So that person becomes known. Now call the book unignorable because it's not really about you know, having a huge audience or being an influence or anything like that. I don't think that for people in, in business, that's really what's relevant. You want to be famous for a few people, maybe a hundred people or a thousand people, the people who can really make a difference to your business. So it's, it's, it's not about the hamster wheel of social media content and daily LinkedIn uh, stories and, and Instagram stories. It's much more about having strategy then building systems around that strategy and then finding the tactics that help you achieve those objectives and i think those are crucial for business success and the title unignorable is basically wordplay on uh, a steve martin quote which read uh, or he he said uh, when asked uh, you know what's your, what's your advice to be successful he said be so good they can't ignore you and that's totally true but the people you and i are dealing with they're already good at what they do right so they shouldn't be ignored and yet many are being ignored and I thought that th there's a crucial piece missing, which, which is, you know, you have to be really good, but you also need to be visible. Those, those are two sides of the same coin. So for me, um, investing in your personal brand or the company brand or visibility, awareness and sales is not, a, is not distracting from what you should do. It is actually part of what you need to do in order to be successful. And as you know, most, most startups are not successful. And the ones that are successful, usually the, the ones that also communicate uh, pretty well. Mm. Yeah. You know, I want to I want to dig a little bit deeper on this one because I find it such an interesting topic from my from my own experience. You know, one of one of my startups, like I had a communication director, we worked really hard on getting a, a consistent voice in the organization. Of course, I was definitely central to the to the messaging and, and to the brand of it, but we really struggled to to 
find that or to connect with that audience of a hundred or a thousand people. In the end, we ended up hiring a strategic communications firm, which uh, was embedded in the industry. We were B2B SaaS, so they were embedded in that industry and they were able to, you know, get either have me write or ghostwrite articles, get me speaking engagements at the right conferences in the right publications and whatnot. But at that point, we had already raised a few million dollars. So we had the resources to be able to afford a retainer agreement from a, a really great firm. What about in the, the early stages? You know, what kind of tools and tips do you have for, you know, the, the startups that are, you know, maybe in their seed rounds or pre-seed or just kind of getting off the ground? What kind of momentum can we make on the bootstrap? that isn't going to require a lot of resources? Yeah, it's a great question. I think being ultra focused, not trying to be on all platforms or do all things. First of all, ask yourself, what, what are my strengths? Am I a great writer? Am I good in front of the camera? Uh, do I like being on podcasts? And focus on the things that uh, you're good at, play to your strength, that don't require a lot of energy because you just love doing it, for instance. And secondly, make sure that's where your audience is as well. Uh, and if you combine the two, let's say you're great on video and your audience likes to watch videos on LinkedIn, you know, focus on that. And then maybe don't start with a thousand people, start with your dream 10, your top 10 list of people you want to reach. Okay, if I get noticed by these 10 people and have a meaningful interaction with them, maybe that leads to a first two customers, which could be the breakthrough. So you laser focus on one platform, one format, and maybe 10 people. And once you figure that out, you can expand on that. And, and you, you do that by having a good workflow in place. You can outsource a lot of things to you know, a VA who, who can be anywhere in the world. So often it's not big investment. Someone who can help you with the post-production, um, for instance. So you're only doing the, the creative side and shooting the video, say, and then hand it over to someone to do the post-production and post it for you. So it, it can be very cost and time efficient. Uh, and if you do that, focus on one platform, on your strength, and a very small group of people, um, then then that could be, you know, the lottery ticket that gets, you know, helps you really launch your startup. And also ask these people. So if you know who the 10 people are, ask them, what's that? What's your pain point? What, what do you need to know? What are the five things currently debated in the industry that you would like to see answers to? And then just answer these questions or address these pain points. So basically focus on what's important to the most important people for you. So just just like you should be when building your business model, use customer discovery, you know, yeah, use that exactly use that exactly. process, engage. Gotcha. Yeah. And and don't mix it with sales at that stage. At that stage, it's all about giving, right? You give answers, you give value, you give ideas. Don't don't try to make a sale at that point in time. It's literally about being discovered and being seen as a thought leader or an opinion leader in this space, in this niche. And once people recognize you as that, you know, then the next touch points will be way easier. Hmm. So, so as you know, you like, you like me, we engage with a lot of startups every year, you know, and we see them in all sorts of shapes and sizes with different business models and, and different industries. One of the thing that I can say, maybe not universally, but close to it, um, I see these, the early ideas of sales and marketing is social media. You know, it, it's almost like a checkbox for a lot of them. B2B, B2C doesn't matter. They, they, everyone seems to think this is something we, we have to do. Um, when I was launching a company 10 years ago, there was only a couple to choose from. Now there's so many different channels that are kind of popping out. Um, of course, they're different for each dip business, but are there any of these that you're bullish on and maybe you're, you're less so? Are there, 
are, are there any patterns that you've seen for people to consider? Yeah, I think I think I'm pretty bullish on LinkedIn. I think LinkedIn in the next few years will be the strongest platform for anything relating, at least to B2B. B2C, maybe not so much. In terms of B2C, I've, I'm not bullish on Instagram uh, because I think they will go the same way as Facebook where, you know, you have to pay a lot of money to be visible. And with all the changes in Apple, uh, you know, also on, on Apple's side, not sure how effective uh, Facebook, Instagram advertising will be in the future. So I'm also bullish on building newsletter lists because you own these lists. You're not slave to the algorithm. No one can take those, uh, you know, contacts away from you. So if you can manage to get people from a platform to uh, on your newsletter list and be in regular communication with them, we know that those opening rates, even if they're low, are still way better than any touchpoint you can create on social media. And then podcasts, I'm, I'm also very bullish on podcasts. And, you know, not a surprise, you and I are, are obviously podcasters. So, you know, we believe in the medium, but I think it, it allows you to build trust with audiences that you would not otherwise, uh, you know, people don't usually give you half an hour, an hour of their time. But, you know, you and I, they invite us into the cars, living rooms, headphones when they work out. So you, you can build a relationship and you can build the perception that, okay, this person knows what they're talking about. So I'm bullish on that as well. And books, of course, because books are, are bloody hard to write. And, you know, people uh, generally shy away from that. And, and so should most people. It, it is it is tough. Uh, and once you've written it, you've only done half the job because then you have to market it. So think twice before you do it. But if you do and you pull through, that gives you a real differentiating point uh, to, to, you know, within your peer group. What, what I'm hearing from you, Oliver, is actually the higher the effort, the higher the return. Because, you know, one thing posting a photo doesn't take a lot or a tweet is only 140 characters, but the ROI on it is low compared to writing a book or even creating a podcast or even writing a newsletter on a weekly basis, right? Bigger, bigger effort, but bigger ROI in your opinion. Yeah, exactly. And if you say LinkedIn is my channel, great. Do a video every day, you know, figure out the workflow. You can do it at home. It, you know, record it in one session on Sunday afternoon, whatever. You know, it, it is relatively straightforward, but you need to show up consistently for it to work. Just doing it once a week or occasionally is not going to work. So if, if you pick your platform, then commit to it. Mm -hmm. So I, I got to ask because it's such a timely question these days, but have you, are you a convert to these things like Clubhouse and whatnot as, or are you jumping on the new channels as they arise or do you like TikTok or Clubhouse or whatnot, or do you wait for them to, to stabilize before you invest in in those efforts yeah exactly i haven't invested in clubhouse uh, that much obviously i you know i've go on there and, and listen in and uh, contribute if i can but um i haven't invested a lot of time um I, I, I want to see if it really is there for the long term or whether one of the clones or just you know summer and the end of lockdown will mean that enthusiasm wanes so i was listening into conversation last week, there were only like five people. So you can see maybe that interest is, is waning a little bit, but I don't want to, you know, uh, say Clubhouse is over. That That's nonsense. I'm sure it's going to have a future. But I also like to, to focus on, say, books or podcasts or things that are maybe less fleeting that will be there a month or a year from now and provide value to to the people I'm connected with and uh, hopefully to to build my audience as well. So um, I, I use this, those platforms strategically and then consistently if I think there's a plate for me that, that's worthwhile. Um, but I haven't really doubled down on Clubhouse or any of the newer channels right now. I want to ask one more question about the the book writing, because, you know, you and I have obviously talked off, offline a little bit about uh, aspirations in, in that realm. Um, 
but you know, both of us have had 20 years of career already. Um, do you think that's a, a viable option for a young person? Or do you really think you need to be a little more sophisticated and evolved in your career before you go down a path like that? I think a young person could write a great book. If they niche down enough, uh, I spoke to a young guy who re who's written a book about tennis and he called it uh, Game Set Magic. And it was the mindset of tennis coaching and he wrote this for tennis coaches. So I thought that's that's smart. That's really smart because you, you know, there's probably not another book like that for tennis coaches. Uh, so if you can own that niche, fantastic, great, do it. And I also thought when I started writing books that uh, not to put pressure, too much pressure on myself to say, you know, if, if I write 10 books in 10 years, I may be actually pretty good at this, but, you know, I'll probably be a rubbish writer for some time. Um, so you just start, you take the pressure away. I think the idea of writing a book uh, early on in your career and it will be a bestseller, I think that's uh, that's probably not going to happen. Uh, it may never happen, but uh, it's like first podcast episode. It's just not that good, right? And you just have to overcome this, like, and like anything in life. So um, with the third book, I... Well, after the second book, I realized that I need to spend way more time and thought about, think about um, the marketing of the book. And I wanted to ensure it became a bestseller and in order to, you know, reach, you, you write it for other people, right? You don't write it for yourself. And in that respect, I wanted people to see it and read it and, you know, for the effort to pay off as well. So to use it as a, you know, as a door opener for business as well, to be honest, of course. So um, we were then quite strategic about how we could market it, how we could uh, reach bestseller status. And we managed to do that on the first day it came out uh, late last year. It became a number one bestseller in uh, six countries in various Amazon categories. So that'd be things like PR or international business. Of course, novels say more, say sell more on Amazon, but it is about the niche and your audience, right? So we we, <clears throat> we reached bestseller status there, but that was the um, the result of quite a strategically planned, deliberate campaign that then ideal, you know, got us over the line, if you like. And if I understand correctly, you self-published that book. Is that is that right? Yes, I self-published it because I wrote this during Corona when Corona started. We're still in Corona. So I wanted to, um, you know, my, my previous books and my, my consulting practice is mostly about CEOs and leadership communication. So I wanted to give the toolbox to people, say solopreneurs, startup entrepreneurs who may not be able to, uh, something that's tailored to them that would work for them and could reach a wider audience of, you know, self-employed solopreneurs and so on, because I saw them really struggling during the crisis. And I could relate to that because 10 years ago, I was in that situation, just coming out of the financial crisis and building a business. So I wanted to give, you know, what I could in terms of the toolbox and the advice I could give to, to that audience. So I wanted to bring it out quickly um, and, I, you know, at the moment I'm learning about the publishing process of working with publishers. So I'm thinking about, um, working with a publisher for my next book. And that's just the next stage, I think, to try that out and see if I can reach a wider German audience with something that's, um, maybe not as business related, but maybe, you know, uh, targeted at wider audience here. That could be quite interesting. That'll be a new challenge. Uh, I've self-published three books, so I don't need to, you know, need to do that again. So I want to take the next step. And that's how I pro approach book writing that it's, it's a process. It's a, you know, you have to learn and every book will be better than the last. And hopefully at some point it will be halfway decent. Hmm. You know, I would love to dive deeper into that book, but I'll just, I'm going to do a plug for you. Everyone should get uh, Oliver Ouse's book, Unignorable. I think there's a lot of, lot of wisdom in there. But I, I want to bring our conversation kind of back to where we started with with a little more kind of insights into the to individual. And I, I like to ask everybody a couple 
uh, silly questions at the end of the episode. But the, the first one is, you know, you've you've now had a, a very interesting circuitous career through corporate, through your own ventures, through being an investor, a mentor, a best-selling author. When you look back at over the course of the past few decades, what have you learned that you wish you could tell your younger self? Like, what advice would you have for young people that you've kind of learned along the way? Um, I've lost my wife three years ago, and um, that obviously forced me, and I wanted to dig deeper, find new sources of energy, um, value time, value life. And, you know, when you're young, maybe you not always appreciate uh, life and uh, the time you're given, the health you're given, if you're lucky the good things about life. And I think, yeah, it sounds corny, but it made me a better human being, I think. And it released a lot of energy and I wanted to use that energy wisely, not in a self-destructive or superfluous way, but to say, okay, how can I, how can I give back? How can I provide value to people? How can I uh, create great jobs for people who are challenging and interesting? So just trying to live a more intentional and, and also, you know, mindful life, uh, if you like. And, you know, I think my advice would just be, you know, Think about life as a present. Don't complain about little things. Don't get stressed out or annoyed by little things. Of course, our businesses are important. We we love them, but they're not as important as people or you know the connections we make in life and uh, you know just enjoying life, enjoying the fact of being alive and everything that's that's coming with that, ups and downs <clears throat> and so on, and and you know make the most of that that journey because none of us makes it out of here alive, so might as well enjoy it. Also, I've, um, to, to add to that, I've, I've never shared this in public. So um, I think it's, uh, I think they say, you, you, you know, don't talk about open wounds. You, you teach from scar tissue and maybe I'm at that stage where I um, probably learned a few things, which, which I would like to share more with people as well going forward and help people if, if I can. So that's, uh, I think, part of my mission or my journey going forward. And uh, yeah, so thank you for, uh, for, for asking and thanks for, for allowing me to share this. You know, the 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 openness of of heart and spirit is just another underlying message in there as well so that's just wonderful all right i'm going to i'm going to wrap things up with a couple maybe sillier questions there but just to um you you're an author so obviously you're a reader as well. Um, I've learned throughout my life, I grew up in a home with a, a, a library, which was Florida ceiling books. And it was my favorite place to hang out growing up. And over the years, I've learned that uh, you learn so much from a person by what they're reading. Um, of course, it, you could recommend one of your own. But um, is there a book on your bedside table that you could recommend? Like all of your other guests, and I think you mentioned this in a previous episode, I have a pile of books I'm going through because you're not always in the mood for the same book, right? Sometimes you want distraction, you want something funny, or you want a novel or, you know, adventure and so on. So I always make sure I have plenty of books around. And uh, I already mentioned Naval Ravikant, who I think gives you a lot of insights per word. So I, I always go back to that book when I'm sort of scratching my head about something business related. We also talked, you and I, offline about uh, Stephen Kotler and his latest book, The Art of Impossible. And now you, you, you're acquainted with him. And uh, I, I would also recommend that. And to balance that, you know, it's all about, you know, efficiency and, and you know, work hard and, you know, bigger, faster, uh, better. Um, other things like um, I'm reading Vagabonding by, what's his name, Rolf Potts, yeah. which is, I think, about 20 years old. And it talks about, you know, thrift, uh, thrift, long-term long -term travel. You don't need money. You know, you work to, 
uh, to, to live, to travel. It's a completely different perspective. And I think these things always help you challenge your assumptions about what you should do with your life. So question, okay, do I live right? And should I, should I ask these questions or do I answer these questions correctly? Um, then I'm reading something that's um, actually really funny, which is called The Comic Toolbox, How to Be Funny Even If You're Not, by a guy called John Forhouse. And I think that's from something like 1994. And the backstory to this is I have a really funny British friend, Mark, and he forwarded me this copy and he said, you'll probably enjoy this. I got this from a mate. And my mate got this from Sasha Baron Cohen, you know, the, the Borat actor. And Sasha Baron Cohen told my mate that this is the only book about being funny you will ever have to read. So of course, with that pedigree and, and that introduction, I had to read it. But it's not an ebook, it's basically a scanned in copy, like we you know shared back in the 90s before there were ebooks and, and you know all that. So it's it's a slightly hard to read uh, a paper copy that was scanned in. Uh, and, and probably shared many times over. But this is, you know, the comic toolbox by John Foyles is, is, is something I can recommend. I'm not sure anyone can get their hands on this, but it's, it's worth a read. Okay. Not sure it may be funnier yet, but I'm not, I'm not yet through it. <laughs> well, as a, as a not naturally funny guy, I've written that down on my list to, of things to find. But I, I love the, the variety. You know, you mentioned vagabonding on one side and the art of impossible on the other. That could be a perfect analogy for the existential crisis of my life. Do, do I want to pack up a backpack and run away or do I want to optimize my peak performance? So really great. Exactly, exactly. And, and I think life is full of paradoxes, right? So it may be not one or the other, but find, find way for both or find, find space for both in life. Indeed, indeed. All right, one other question in that regard. You're, you're going for a, a walk or a workout. What's on your what's on your playlist? Yeah, so Huberman Lab uh, by Andrew Huberman. I think that's a, uh -huh. that, that's a recent or modern classic, I would say. I love it that, you know, he makes the science behind the neuroscience, which, which is often complicated. And, and you know, I'm, I'm obviously not a, not a scientist. So I, I enjoy he makes it really understandable for laymen. And what I also like about this is that it allows people like you and me to judge uh, a lot of other content, right? So there are a lot of podcasts, there's a lot of books that say, give you the answer. Okay, it's this, it's that. Um, there are books called Willpower. There's another book that's called Willpower is Not the Answer. So who do you believe? So if you're not, an, not a, so if you don't know the science behind these things, there's, it's very hard to judge and all the, all the advice will cancel each other out after a while and you get confused. So knowing the science, understanding the science is actually crucial to, to form your own opinion on these things. And that's why, why I like uh, Huberman's podcast. Oh, so good. You know, I, I actually just did my workout a couple hours ago, listened to today's episode, which is on the neuroscience of emotions. But I've decided that... Uh, that Andrew Huberman is probably my podcaster crush now. He's just in absolutely <laughs> yeah, like incredible. Like Don't incredible. wait for his book to come out. Yeah, indeed, indeed. Um, where, can, uh, where can listeners find you online? Where can they find your work? So my podcast is called Speak Like a CEO. We interview uh, CEOs and founders every week, and we focus on communications and, and leadership questions. So it's very much about uh, the, the communication side of building a business and running a business. Uh, it's on Spotify, Apple, and all the usual places. And if you want to connect with me, uh, LinkedIn is probably the best place. That's Oliver AUST. Um, lovely to hear from your, from your listeners. And uh, yeah, looking forward to connect. Oliver, as usual, every time we chat, um, I walk away smiling. It <laughs> was a pleasure to have this conversation Likewise. with you. And uh, yeah, I look forward to hearing what, uh, what next, bo next books you write. And uh, we'll definitely be listening to the next episodes coming up. 
Thank you, Garrett. Much appreciated. It's great to be here. Well, folks, that was Oliver Oust, entrepreneur, investor, author, and communications expert. Stay tuned for our next episode, which goes live every other Wednesday. Until then, be sure to check out our website at mostawesomepodcast.com, follow our channel on YouTube, and subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast streaming service. Bis nächstes Mal.